0: Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last. Best Hope for Trash. This is a free-watch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I'm your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, welcome to Season 4. How you doing?
1: I'm happy to be here. Uh, Yes. It's been a busy fucking couple of months with work, and I have missed being a goddamn goblin on this podcast
2: it's, it's been a hot minute <laughs> since we've recorded
0: yeah we're now in the second half of 2021
1: yeah not that you listeners will have any clue <laughs> This, this it's is probably coming like, in 2022 when you listen to this yeah you <laughs> listeners will have no clue that it's been time by the time you're listening to this we'll be all we'll be doing another show already or something who knows uh but yeah uh for us, we took a little bit a little bit of a break there uh while Justin moved and on the vacation and uh I worked too much and uh now we're back and we're all happy to be here.
2: Uh, how are you? I, I'm good. Um last week was the traditional return from vacation where I basically took the fire extinguisher to my email inbox and did two weeks worth of work plus the week. That was last week all in one week. so that was fun. That was a fun time.
1: All right good stuff cool cool
2: because unfortunately well well uh you know I have lots of support on going on vacation that doesn't necessarily mean that stuff stops happening around me
1: Mhm. Mm-hmm.
2: although the uh, my my podcasts are extremely happy to have me back.
0: All right well before we get started, I have a question for you about.
2: Fear. One fear.
1: What is your most prominent household god? Uh, My household god is Nug, the god of chaos. Uh, You worship Nug, the god of chaos, by leaving offerings of peanut butter and jelly and cheese on the table in the living room. And uh, when you really want to celebrate Nug, the god of chaos, you can also leave Lego sets out in the living room.
2: On the floor, I'm assuming,
1: yes, you leave them on the floor, and uh, when you come back, there will be bags of plastic and Lego pieces everywhere, and you know your offering will have been accepted.
2: <laughs> I'm not sure I can beat that um that's that's pretty good. I think my household God might be one of those ones from Hogfather and Discworld, where it's like the eater of socks or the the pencil goblin or something. <laughs> I swear I have many pens, and yet none of them are ever on my desk. They they vanish.
1: It's not the uh, the god of <laughs> clack?
2: That, that's also a possibility. That's also a possibility.
1: Demands the uh, sacrifice of your funds, and in return, it, it brings you keycaps and switches? Yes,
2: yes. Um, or based on my decor, <laughs> it could also be read from Transistor.
1: All right. As I that's valid. I recently
0: moved into a new space. One of the first things I did was I made a new shrine to my household gods. So, obviously, there is Peter Parker, protector of queens, Darth Revan, <laughs> our lady of moral quandaries and its complicated relationship statuses, Gritty, who is just gritty, <laughs> and Marcus, god of himbos. Uh, They're they they are prominently displayed in my home. Chief among these is Marcus.
2: And we've had some good Excellent. Marcus content in this episode, too. Yeah.
0: Uh, so tonight we are going to be covering uh, the first two episodes of season four. And Anna, I believe you've
2: got episode one. How about you take us away? Because where were we last time? Oh, yeah. So uh, so here we are at the start of season four. So uh, after JMS notably said that he would not write a full season of television again, um, we have writing this episode... Don't worry, it's still JMS. It'll be JMS for the whole season. Uh, and this one's directed by David J. Eagle. And here at the start of season four, it's been one week since he looked at me. No, wait, wait. That's that's two years too, too early. Um,
1: <laughs> it's
2: been one week since Sheridan jetted off to Zahadoom with his zombie robot wife and newt the planet while falling into a bottomless chasm. Jakar, this time, gives our season opener voiceover, explaining that Delenn has been fasting and praying since John left. Londo has returned to Centauri Prime. Garibaldi is still missing, last seen being sucked into his shadow ship, which will, I'm sure, end great. Mm -hmm. And Ivanova is trying to hold the station together by the skin of her teeth, despite being emotionally devastated by the loss of Sheridan. Our A and B plots this time are nearly completely disjoint and have roughly equal screen time. So I'm going to tackle the on-station plot first here. So Delenn and Ivanova are trying desperately to keep the alliance together. The shadow ships have retreated, and most of the League thinks that this is that this means that they, they've won the war. We're done. Uh, DeleN and Ivanova are very skeptical of this and want to push forward their attack, or at the very least, not see the alliance, you know, dissolve into complacency. Ivanova also receives information from Veer, who's hooked into Morden's Information Network, um, now that Londo is gone, revealing uh, exactly what we saw at the end of last season. Sheridan was last seen jumping into an abyss after flying the White Star and two 500 megaton nukes into Zahadoom. We also have Kosh 2.0, who is refusing to help hold together the Alliance in a way that, as usual, is both cryptic and ominous. Sheridan's purpose has been fulfilled, and he is now irrelevant, but he is apparently opened an unexpected door for the Vorlons to do what must be done. He's also apparently keeping these plans from Lita, and she mentions that this new Vorlon feels darker than Kosh, which, duh, yes, obviously. (laughs) Giving Kosh 2.0 a psychic piggyback ride also seems to be substantially more draining than doing the same for Kosh Classic, and Lita looks physically drained after their interactions. Lita has come up with a plan, though, and approaches Ivanova with it late at night, as Susan is struggling with what's apparently been a full week of insomnia and drinking vodka.
1: But still has time to put on a classy silk nightie. Yes. Yes. As one does when one is depressed you know, and drinking vodka.
0: I,
2: I res- and waiting for a telepath to come into your room. I mean, <laughs>
1: it is Tali, or er, not, oh, Freudian, Freudian slip, uh. It is Susan, yeah. so that's not out in the I realm mean, of
2: the way. Maybe
0: who knows? Maybe she's like, I've gotta manifest this. I've gotta get Lita. I am just like Lita, come on.
2: <laughs> I've 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 always kind of shipped them. Lita stops by Ivanova's quarters and suggests that they take the white star out to Zahadoom. Uh, she is confident that she can block the shadows and telepathically scan for the fragment of kosh that is left over in Sheridan, while Ivanova scans for more mundane signals. So Delenn, Lita, and Ivanova set off on their mission. And we get, as they drop out of hyperspace, Lita's eyes turn black as she begins her blocking. All of their attempts to detect or contact John fail, however, and Sheridan does not respond. Something else does, though. A set of shadow eyes appear, similar to those that Ivanova encountered in The Great Machine back in Voices of Authority. Uh, They mesmerize the crew of the White Star. Ivanova orders Lanier to land the ship on the planet, but the ship jets back to hyperspace uh, based on a failsafe set by Lanier, who is a good, good boy. (laughs) Once in hyperspace, they all snap out of the trance, uh, but are shaken both by the telepathic effects of the eyes and by the failure of their mission. Back on the station, we get a personal log from Ivanova. She admits that Sheridan is dead, and both the station and the alliance are in her hands. We cut back to Zahadum, however, and see Sheridan huddled around a small fire. Another figure approaches and asks him to share the fire. He only answers Sheridan's questions with more questions, or with cryptic answers, like, you know, many similar characters we've seen on this show, but seems intrigued by their conversation, and as well as by John's appearance in whatever this place is. Our B-plot, meanwhile, is far away on Centauri Prime. Londo has arrived to take his new... Promotion to the royal court. He meets with Emperor Katagia, who is revealed to be a vain young man. The Emperor monologues about his power to set trends in court and give orders to the head of House Malari, and notes that some unnamed person has specifically requested Lando's expertise and presence on Centauri Prime. This mysterious individual is revealed to be Morden, who apparently survived the explosion but uh, is now very crispy and is shedding skin flakes all over Londo's bedroom. Morton reveals that the shadows are setting up a base on Centauri Prime, uh, with the blessing of Cartagia, and leaves Londo alone with the pile of skin flakes. The next day, one of the ministers leads Lando out to the gardens to witness a scene from his visions. Hundreds of shadow ships passing overhead toward their new base. The Emperor is gleeful and completely unwilling to listen to Londo's warnings. The Shadows have promised to elevate him to godhood. And the sacrifice of Centauri lives is a small price to pay for such a boon. That night, Londo calls Veer back on the station and demands he travel to Centauri Prime immediately. Something has to be done about the Emperor, who is clearly insane. And Londo will need Veer's help. The Emperor, meanwhile, details the events of the day to his private office, filled with the severed heads of his enemies. When Veer arrives, Londo fills him in on the situation after scanning for bugs, and he informs Veer of what the two of them must do. Kill the Emperor. There's another important scene in this episode, uh, which is not quite long enough to be a C plot, but it is important overall. We have Zack Allen going to Garibaldi's quarters to investigate an intruder there and he finds Jakar wearing Garibaldi's hat and studying the poster of Daffy Duck. Jakar wants to repay Garibaldi's support during his recent spiritual transformation by finding Garibaldi and bringing him home to the station. And that's the episode. It's a good, it's a good opener to the season. So I
0: think yeah. we talked about this before but in our in in the research we've done for this episode Apparently, there was a break in in season three for a release schedule after War Without End. Mm-hmm. So the end of season three and the start of season four were only one week. They yeah. were released in subsequent weeks, which is wild for me.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> and that's that's interesting because, like, you would think that if that had been the summer cliffhanger with. John, you know, jumping into the abyss. Mm -hmm. Like, that would have been a hell of a summer cliffhanger. But no, it was the – we at least start to see the resolution of that next week.
0: War Without End is definitely a way to take your summer break. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way I'm putting it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I have so many questions about this episode, but almost all of them are about Cartagia. Because everything on the station, I think – really works. Like, yeah, you know, Susan holding the entire station together with fury and vodka is so absolutely Ivanova from top to bottom mm-hmm. and absolutely. Delan and spiritual mourning. Like the depictions of what everybody's doing, uh, Jakar, <laughs> like, you know, lurking around Garibaldi's quarters, wearing his, his goddamn Stetson like, making jokes about his household god, which is Daffy Duck, is one of my favorite, like, little moments of Garibaldi. And actually, like, is a nice little moment where it, like, acknowledges that Garibaldi sucks. And he's like, nobody else would go looking for him, so I will. And (laughs) I like that, that it's, like, acknowledging that Garibaldi's trash and that no one's going to go looking for him.
2: It's like everybody's (laughs) busy with other stuff Mm -hmm. and Garibaldi's not important enough to go be
1: found. Yeah, but I like that. And I like that he's it's a great moment. But then you have then you flip over to Centauri Prime where you have this Fred Rogers, Jeffrey Dahmer hybrid running the Centauri <laughs> Republic. And it's just like, what the sweet fuck is going on here? Who who blew it in the f- in in the background checks when they were gonna put this guy on the throne?
2: It was Lando Londo and, Londo and Lord Rifa.
1: <laughs>
2: they blew it.
1: <laughs> I mean, I guess it must have been them, right?
2: Le- I mean, probably mostly Rifa, yeah. but like Cuz you don't think It was them. Londo wasn't they did around. This. I think it was
1: Rifa's faction that picked the emperor. How do yeah. you not notice that the guy you like that the guy you're putting on the throne has a has a room full of heads that he talks to? I don't
0: think I think that that head thing is more a recent development.
1: Okay. I'm just going to throw this out there. That's not a thing you just start doing. Listen,
0: some people, some people start. Some people went through the um, went through the pandemic. They started making sourdough. They like the sourdough starters. Maybe some people just like, hey, we're in a transitional period of my time. I need have a new hobby. Let me talk to some severed heads.
1: I mean, maybe, but I think it's far more likely that. Somewhere in the House Cartagia grounds, there's like a, a little like, I don't know, like woodshed on the edge of their property full of little like Centauri squirrel heads and rabbit heads that he talked to when he was a kid. And he's got a lot of missing classmates and uh, teachers from college and high school. So I have a question.
0: Do you think centauri squirrels have like little fowhawks?
1: Yes, I assume everything <laughs> everything in their e- in their ecosystem <laughs> has the fringe up up the back of the head. Okay,
0: so, so That's
2: how that's how sci-fi planets maybe, work, right?
0: Maybe maybe it's because they're flying squirrels so, so the 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 head the the head mohawk is a rudder.
2: Yeah.
1: That makes perfect <laughs> sense to me. Yeah, okay, cool. That tracks.
2: Absolutely. Well, well, we know that, like, the Centauri are all about, like, covering shit up, right? Yeah. Like, that's what the great houses do. So maybe House Cartagia was just, like, really, really good at, like, Yeah, no, I can
1: see that. I hate that 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 makes perfect sense to me, but it totally does. I just don't know, man. This ascot-wearing sociopath.
2: On the surface, like when you first see him, you're just like, "Oh, he's like, you know, vain and foppish." Yeah, he's he's dressed
0: like a dandy. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. The the costumer is like, this is some of the best costuming work they've done on the show, I think. Of just like the the very like, okay, we're gonna I'm gonna go into this a little bit, but like the the like costuming for Cartagia. You could have easily just like, okay, we're gonna pull three things out of the closet and toss them on this dude. But no, they're like fitted. They're yeah. like the boots go up and they're like they're they're accentuating the calves like an eighteenth like was popular in the 18th century. It's like it's very chic, it's very fashionable.
1: It tells you exactly who this guy is, or wants who exactly who he wants you to think he is the second you see yeah. him. And then he starts to talk, and he's like, "Oh, I'm going to sacrifice the Centauri populace to be a god." And you're like, "Okay, that's not great. You're probably you're crazy, uh, but maybe you're just like emperor crazy, like fiddling in the flames crazy." And then he goes into a room and talks to severed heads, and you're like, "Oh no, you're 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 Jeffrey Dahmer crazy." Okay, yeah. that's that's good to know. That's that's yeah, that's, that's not great for for your home world. Okay, I want to jump into a thing with the opener because it Yay. because
0: I have a theory. So first, first I do want to point out that um, I cannot remember the race of aliens' name, but the the greys, um, their ships are now in the intro. Yeah. So we get to like every time we watch it, I get I, I watch it for the flying saucer. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. The season four opening uh, for those of you who don't want to go listen to it right now is a bunch of people talking. One of the lines Londo says. It was a new age, and then Franklin says it was the end of history, and I was, and that got my brain thinking because I know I've heard that phrase before, and like it, it, it's not a common phrase, yeah. So it's like I attach it to something really quickly. So this is going, this is going on like just in crack theory, and we'll see how this goes for the rest of season four and five. Um, but the end of history is a very specific thing in the late 1980s a political scientist named Francis Fukuyama published a paper called The End of History which was later expanded on into a book in 1992 called The End of History and the Last Man hmm. it's posits it, it it's a theory, like it's it's a it's a contended theory that human culture or history should be viewed as an evolutionary process and okay. that the end point of evolution in history is liberal democracy. So here is my thing that I'm going to, like, pause out here, is that that was a specific reference that JMS drops because this is timely. This is about when the time when he would be starting to write Babylon 5 as a...
1: Scripting it out, yeah.
0: A, like, a scripting it out and structuring the act here. So what we're going to see- And we know that JMS
2: read slash read a hell of a lot of stuff from and he, he, he loves
1: to wag his literary dick in these scripts too
0: yeah if this was the thing if this is the thing where like i actually wanted to ask him i might actually because it's something that i'm actually interested in i'm like are you reading did you read this basically the theory states that like society over time as it evolves will trend towards democracy as sort of like the end state of human society that it, it's it, it's what we will sort of gravitate towards. Interesting. And so what I think so here is my theory is <laughs> that throughout season four, we we have seen we're, we're gonna get into this next episode with the promi- with a promise that Jakar and Londo are going to make. Spoilers, I guess <laughs> I think we're going to see an upheaval of Narn and Centauri the Narn are going to return to some, like, they're going to rebuild their society, and they're going to be a major upheaval in Zimtari society, I think that we're going to see the Federation. Like, I don't know what that's going to look like, but I think we're going to see the Federation. I'm sorry, this is officially, like, I, am, I have like, sweated so much the last week, I have <laughs> done a lot of stuff, and I'm like, I am brain dead, but this is where I ended up.
2: I don't think that we can talk about this. I think that
1: uh, I believe the proper response is RAFO. Re Okay. Yeah, that, but I just watch want to and find out in this case, but
0: But I wanna put yeah. this out here on like the on the record so that so that like either we can laugh at me
2: or we could or I could be vindicated. We'll see. We'll see. This'll be interesting.
0: Yeah. Hi. I'm Justin. I uh my Babylon five podcast ideas were sparked by uh, national security writer talking about Henry McCoy. <laughs> the the bouncing beast. <laughs> On a much lighter note, the look into Garibaldi's bedroom it just proves why nobody has slept with Garibaldi in this entire show.
1: What you don't fi- you don't find <laughs> Daffy Duck. an eight foot tall portrait of Daffy Duck to be erotic? I cannot literally think of anything less. I can. I mean <laughs> Michael Garibaldi. <laughs> well there we go.
2: Uh, and um and and Jakar pulls out that it's that that same goddamn hat, so the hat
1: that, that that Garibaldi's wearing when he's undercover in down below.
2: Yeah, well, it's the it's the hat that it's the same hat that like when he's on the run in the episode that we didn't yeah. actually cover. He like grabs from a random alien and then he goes to put it back on the alien's head, and the alien's just like, "No, it's yours yeah. now, buddy. You have the hat." <laughs>
1: It looks better hat? on Jakar than it does on Garibaldi, but what wouldn't?
2: Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, what does I mean, yeah. I mean, like, he doesn't even have, like, ears for it to rest on and, like, <laughs> it doesn't even, like, go in his head, but it still looks yeah, better. Yeah, no. Uh, part of that... And he's part, got it tipped at yeah. that
2: jaunty angle. Yeah, the
0: jaunty angle, like, going with, like, I don't know what to ever call, like, his clothes, but I just call them leathers. Yeah. Like... It he, works. He, yeah. He's just
1: wearing, like, D&D leathers. Yeah. It just works. Jakar looks... Terrific in that hat, and I, honest to God, wish that he had just like worn it the whole time he was looking for Garibaldi. Also, the the vor, or
0: the shadows just have the Eye of Sauron available on speed yeah. dial,
2: apparently. And, and this this I have questions here about like what exactly the shadows are. So like clearly the shadows and their ships are different. Like that their ships are more like organic technology drones based on. Programming sentient creatures to be control yep. units. There aren't shadows in shadow ships, and then we've got the like spiky boys that Morden yep. hangs out with, and then there's this eye thing, which like is that a shadow? Is that like shadow tech? Well, is it a telepathic projection? And like, but like the shadows don't have well, telepaths? That's the yeah, thing that the, the,
1: that messes with my head. Is it's very clearly a telepathic presence but the shadows don't use telepaths
0: I mean, maybe it's like a pseudo maybe it's a telepathic firewall yeah like we, we built anti-telepath technology and it just happens to present us some glowing eyes
1: uh but yeah I, I I really had no idea that it would be confused with uh the eye of Sauron uh you know it was just like completely <laughs> completely random that uh, a, a a big eye motif around a planet called Zaha Doom would remind people of the Lord of the Rings. It's completely random. (laughs) Fucking dork.
0: Gosh.
2: Uh, So so I want to talk about Ivanova here. A few things. On the lighter note, how fucking grim is it to have your alarm clock wake you up by reading your email notifications and then your schedule? That is
1: a... a specific kind of masochistic that's like, how much do I hate myself? Do I hate myself enough to start my day with my to do list? Yeah.
2: Like, yeah, still, I do. like, yeah. And, and then also her schedule is bonkers. Like, Absolutely bonkers. Like, when does this woman have time to pee? Let alone like yeah. eat a meal. It reminds
1: me of um if you've ever seen a so uh I love the West Wing, and there's an episode of the West Wing where they're talking about the president's daily schedule. And they're talking about like
2: it's the one where it's the one where the um new, where Toby takes over for Josh. Uh,
1: no, right? it's the he gets a new it's when his new secretary comes in. Uh, when Fitterer is trying to like take over the schedule and try and like enforce some order and she she's busting Lyman's chops about how the fact that he doesn't have a memo and so on and so forth. Uh, but she's reading off the, the president's schedule and she's like from 5.45 to this, to this, to this and she, it's like, he's got like 15 minutes for like a national security meeting and then like 11 minutes to talk about a nuke that went missing and like, it's all these bananas things and then she talks about – the, and then she references the fact that, like, by 9 a.m., he's already, like, two hours behind schedule and stuff like that. And I was curious, and I went and looked it up, and, like, yeah, that's how presidential schedules work. They schedule, like, 16 hours worth of shit into a 12-hour day, and then just, like, hope that you figure out a way to make it all work. It's fucking bananas. And I, I, I guess if you run a city in space during wartime – that's kind of the same amount of work, roughly speaking.
2: And she's essentially doing two jobs yeah. at this point that she's she's doing everything that she was doing, and she's doing everything that Sheridan was doing because, like, we all know that there's no way she's going to oh, delegate God, no. anything. Ivanova?
1: That's, yeah. it'll be crazy.
2: Yeah.
0: The whole thing of having your schedule read to you, the only thing that is worse about it. Is the fact that she hasn't slept, and I cannot think of anything worse than just like pure insomnia, and just like it's like five thirty in the morning, you haven't slept, and your alarm goes off. Like I can't think of anything worse than that.
2: And you're just sitting. Like, you're just sitting there in your armchair with vodka.
0: Yeah, um, and then having your schedule read to you. Yeah.
2: Jeez.
1: Uh, in what in eleven minutes you have briefing with a bunch of assholes and she's just like, "All right, let's let's pound this vodka and get on with the day." Can you imagine something more yeah. terrifying than Ivanova, sad and hungover? Like, I feel like that's a recipe for just a disaster.
2: So I, I feel like Claudia Christian absolutely kills the acting yeah. in this one. Ivanova in this episode is fantastic. That whole experience of being just, like, emotionally devastated, but having to keep everything together and be the responsible person who is yeah. in charge. Like, that's something that I've experienced and definitely really felt that watching this episode again. For
0: sure. This is this is the point where it's just like, I cannot, I don't want to describe, like, I don't want to ascribe anything to her, like, but it's just like... The amount of stress trauma that you must be that she must be going through, yeah, is just,
2: yeah.
0: And of course, she she's not she's not somebody who will externalize that at all,
2: <laughs> right? That like, you know, no, Ivanova. What's likely happening is that she's basically like largely dissociated from her emotions mm-hmm. to get through the day, yeah. And then at night, she's all the emotions come back, and that she doesn't how little sleep, would yeah. you
1: like to be. I can't remember his name, her subaltern, whatever that guy's name is. Corwin. Uh, Corwin. How little would you Corwin. like to be Corwin in that week? Can you imagine how unpleasant his life is? But how silently he suffers for for Ivanova? Because you know that that guy, I don't think he's in love with Ivanova. I've never imagined that despite going over there, apparently, with the intention to get some. Uh, I've always <laughs> imagined that he's just devoted to Ivanova because he's just like, look, Somebody has to be there to make sure she doesn't murder everyone, and that's my job. I am, I am the wall that stands between all of humanity and Susan Ivanova on a bad day. That's my job. So i I want to I posit
0: like my fan fiction for this, which is that like the we do not see Corbin. I think through, like, the first four episodes of this season or something, like, we don't see him in these two episodes. Yeah. So, I just choose to believe that he is actually out there, like, doing every goddamn meeting that he can, <laughs> and, like, trying to minimize the the harm.
1: <laughs> yeah. And that's why we don't see him on screen. He's He's out there, like... Doing everything that can be done before it gets in front of Ivanova so that she doesn't lose her mind completely. That or he's
0: just like, he's the one in CNC running the state yeah. shit.
1: In our remake of Babylon 5, I think we need to elevate Corwin at some point. Like, I feel like we don't need Zach. Like, is it just me I'm, or does Zach seem like.
2: I like Zach better than I like Garibaldi. Yeah,
1: Zach is a good replace for Garibaldi. Well, okay, so here's my, here's my thing I, I would posit
2: that you don't need
1: to feature the cop on a remake of the show.
2: Well see, see, I don't I think that this is where if we had Zach, we don't need to feature Zach. Like Zack just sort of exists and comes in when okay. it's relevant. Yeah. Like you could do that and then
1: right? Y- you you punt Garibaldi and then into that space, you bring
2: our ambassador yeah, played by our, well,
1: you, you just uh, wholesale import the human ambassador from uh from the expanse. Uh and then you also, I would say, give Corwin more screen time.
0: I, I think it's, I think it's the thing of like, I think you have you have Zach Allen still, um, but instead of like having the security be a feature of the show, it is instead like there is station security because you need station security, but like there's also like ambassadorial guards, like that there's like some sort of like secret service
1: there. Mm.
2: I can see it basically being like put on par with like the dock workers, right? Like that it's an essential station function. Yeah. But, you know, it doesn't need to be featured or like featured where it's relevant because we see the dock workers in a number of episodes. Mm
1: -hmm. Like when you think back on the show, security is in a bunch of like security comes up a lot, but that's because Garibaldi is one of the main characters. Like I have to ask. Myself, how often do you actually need security to tell the stories that are crucial to the to the plot, and it's not that often it's really not, yeah, the gold Channel thing in season one and a few other bits and bobs, and that's about it, so oh you know what you do. you put Garibaldi in season one as this recurring character that like Zach is chafing under the the lash of, and then you kill him at the end of season one. <laughs> You have it
2: shot shot in the back back and and he's
1: gone. He's gone. That's what I would do. Oh, that's that's a good feeling. I like that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) For things that annoy me about this episode, we once again have the writing that I I love the idea of Daffy Duck being a household god, but like, why did they have to throw in the Egyptian god of frustration thing? Like... It's just frustrating, but I mean, that's 90s for you, I guess.
0: It's a joke playing on, like, it's a joke playing on the cultural context that we will get as an audience,
2: and Jakar
0: not knowing that, like, what Egypt is. Yeah. Or what, like, like, he'll, like, it'll just be like, oh, he's the Egyptian god of frustration because suffering, fuck attached.
1: Yeah, it's not a great. It's like yeah. on the scale of like bad cult- cultural references related to Garibaldi, it's like, I don't know, like a four, but it still sucks.
2: It just it's just like it just throws me yeah. off every time. Like it makes me roll my eyes and be like, why why not just leave it as, you know, you could say that he's a minor god of frustration. And that would be that'd be fine. That would work. Yeah. Doesn't have to be yep. Egyptian. I also feel like they missed the mark on casting Lorian. I
1: absolutely agree. I don't like his voice. It, all I can see is is Sebastian. Sebastian.
2: Yeah. If you looked at either one of the characters, like, so Lorraine is played by Wayne Alexander, who also played Sebastian. And e- each of those characters on its own, Wayne Alexander does a good job with. But his diction.
1: Very particular.
2: And voice are mm-hmm. very distinct. And he doesn't change them at all between the two characters. So basically, every time Lorian's on the screen and speaking, I'm like, why is it Sebastian? (laughs) Why is Jack the Ripper talking to Sheridan at the bottom of the pit? And especially that Lorian does the same thing of like asking a lot of cryptic questions and like talking in metaphors and stuff like that that Sebastian also does. And it's like, I get that you wanted to give this guy like more work because he did a good job with Sebastian, but like not that
1: good of a job. Yeah, I think. But like they just thought uh, he was creepy, and th- I don't know. I don't know. It's just bad casting. I I absolutely agree.
2: You could draw a parallel to Jeffrey Combs, who plays like every Star Trek character to exist, yeah. but at least like he varies his diction.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lorian is just Sebastian in a funny prosthetic.
0: Yeah, because like- we're supposed to like. Yeah. No, are we supposed to like Lorian? I don't think we're supposed to like Lorian. I think eventually. I think
1: not In in this episode, you're not supposed to know what the fuck is up with Lorian, but you're for really? sure supposed to like him by, like, you're definitely supposed to like him.
2: You're definitely supposed to like him by the end of Into the Fire. Okay. Yeah.
0: I mean, yeah, but, like, by, like, the end of the, the last two episodes, I don't get the sense that, like, he's a character that you're meant to I like you're you're like I can like say like he is an interesting complex character, but I'm like I don't particularly like him as a person. I think he's a bit of an asshole.
2: <laughs> yeah, but think of, think of how different it would be if he had a different voice, right?
0: Fair. I, I mean, I think like I think like like even separate like separating that. I think the thing they were going for was elfin alien, uh, but instead we've just got this weird alien with yaoi hands.
1: <laughs> <Ew>. <laughs> gross.
2: Speaking of gross things, I think you wanted to talk about about flaky Morden.
1: Yeah,
0: um, the crispy boy. Yeah. So, I'll, so yeah. First of all, we've discussed this before, but like Morton couldn't have gotten that far away from a nuke.
1: Uh, so a I thousand like to- megatons of nuke. No, unless he's the Flash, no, he could not have gotten away from the, those nukes.
0: I, you know, I think, I think actually, like, just, okay, we're gonna go, like, we're gonna, we're gonna put a pin on this. Just okay, I think actually, like, the guy who plays Bordage would be an excellent, like, Flash villain.
1: Oh yeah, no, he'd be a great.
0: Yeah, because because he's got the right levity to play somebody like the Reverse Flash or Zoom.
1: I was just gonna say, like, he'd be a, a pretty solid Eobard Thawne. Thro- yeah. I could see that. <laughs>
0: Then I could see him like really enjoying having it up as somebody like Gorilla Grodd, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we're taking that pit out. And so, anyways, I would like to re—I would like to reintroduce the Morden clone theory because it's funny to me.
2: <laughs> so uh, they're all weyoons, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Now I know it's not—I know it's not the case, but I do like the clone theory. I do like. Uh, there's it. no
2: textual support for it.
1: Yeah, but I'm like sure. <laughs> yeah. No, I...
2: Why not have them all be
0: Wayoons? (laughs) I just like the idea of, like, we just took this one shitty dude and we just made a bunch of him. The Shadows were really into make up a guy. (laughs) They were just like, what if we made just this one really shitty dude? And, you know, we just just sent him out throughout the galaxy to be, like, to sleaze around in used car salesman suits.
2: And that'd be wild because then... Like, then maybe the Morden who's there with Londo is, like, the the Morden that Londo's been dealing with the whole time. And the Morden that we saw in at the end of Season 3 was, like, an entirely different one who yeah. we've never seen before. Yeah, the or- one
1: that's just weirdly obsessed with mass murder and genocide.
0: Maybe the one we see at the end of Season 3 is the one from In the Shadows of Zahadu. Yeah. Like, you know, mm-hmm. maybe maybe there's, like, or, you know, maybe it's, like... Okay, here's the fuck with Sheridan Morden. Here's the Lando Morden. Here's the we've got to go deal with Earth Morden.
1: Okay, um, I have an, an alternate theory. I love this. An alternate theory is that Morden is not human. I'm into this. Okay. What if... We're
0: so done? We're so done going to go around this episode. What
1: if Morden is in a weird thruple with those two shadows that are always with him? And they've had to alter him the way that they altered Lita to, like, handle it.
2: But but also, he was in the vaporization.
1: Well, I don't radius. know. You don't know what it's like to, 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 to get down with two shadows, do you? What if they've got, like, jet engine I mean, genitalia? It would not be the weirdest dick we've seen on this show.
2: But, I mean, vaporization radius of... I'm... A thousand yes, megatons. I
1: absolutely agree with you. Listen, I'm just I've saying... Read,
0: I've read the classic Battletech rules. I know, how, I know how far away you have to be from a nuke to, like, not be instantly disintegrated.
1: Yes, I 100% grant you that unless there's a bananas-good bomb shelter that just happens to fit just one idiot human, and he gets the door, like, almost closed, but not all the way closed, but just enough to... To cook him like a hot dog too long in the microwave <laughs> so it gets all bubbly and crispy and one end pops and all the juices squirt out, but he somehow manages to survive that. I don't know. I feel like Shadow Fuck toy makes way more sense than Clone does. That's just me. Because there's no explanation for him being like, radiation is not science fiction. We've yeah. nuked people before. This is like, they don't turn yeah. into weird crispy skin monsters. I'm just saying- I'm open to other options. Maybe he is a clone that's made out of like a weird material. But in the absence of the clone theory, I think we need to consider
2: this other one. Okay. Or both. Maybe they're maybe they're you know altered clones.
0: Okay. Now I'm, I'm looping back on the thing that I was going to think of earlier. The thing that tells you most about Morden's character. Like and who he is as a person is that as he is talking about like yeah we're going to be here on Centauri Prime and we're going to be you're going to be sheltering us and we're going to be we're going to be looking at our wounds here he's doing this as he's like peeling off his flesh and just tossing it on the floor (laughs) which is just like he's like just picking
1: at it like a bad sunburn I wanted him to eat one I really (laughs) wanted him to just be like just just to like like feed it into his little mouth I thought that would have been like it's the oh. grossest thing, and I love it for him. You know, you know what it remind. I'm suddenly reminded of. You know what he looks like? He looks like like rock monster Oh A little bit, yeah.
2: Oh yeah, I mean the similar makeup style. Yeah, uh, maybe they reused the prosthetics.
0: But yeah, it's the the entirety of just like, oh yeah, I'm gonna just pick off my flesh and just leave it on your floor. Just like, listen, I did that when I was eight and had a sunburn, and I realized that past me was an asshole. Uh, speaking of Londo's terrible, no good, very bad week, I love it when he calls Veer in like the middle of the night, and Veer just looks like shit. <laughs> he's just like... His like, it's like fringe is askew and everything. He's like, no, no, that's cool, I only had to wake up in three hours.
2: I was just getting up and... Six hours.
0: And he just, like, he looks terrible. And, like, I appreciate just how terrible he looks. And, like, nobody's sleeping well on that station.
2: There's some other good Londo stuff from this. So I love Londo's, like, immediate, subtle dig at Cartagia, which really establishes their relationship super well. Um, that he's like talking to that minister about the fact that he's like previously met Cartagia and only as an infant or a teen who was, you know, into looking up women's skirts, which, by the way, is not where you find that on a Centauri. <laughs> That's a fair point. I hadn't thought about that. So maybe he maybe it was a translation him. error. Maybe, but he meets the emperor and he's like, oh, you haven't changed since the last time I saw you.
1: Yeah, it's very good.
2: And also, I love the bit where um, Londo's being called out to see the to see the shadows, and of course, that's a shot that we already have, and it's being reused. So he puts on his old coat because his new coat is in the wash.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: So he he has to put on his old coat.
1: I like that. That was one of the shots that JMS. So apparently, JMS told only one actor, and that's the guy who plays Londo. The whole story of the show at the start, because he needed it for his arc. He wanted him to know, like, this is what you're going to do. You're going to start this thing and do this thing and do this thing and then die. He outlined the whole arc of Londo's character so that he would know what he was going to go through. (laughs) And he was the only one that knew through the whole show, like, what all this was. So he knew what that shot of those ships meant. And where to, what it was gonna be. Which I think is awesome. It it kind of like gives him the actor's version of that same pre-sentiment that his character has. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like it.
0: There's a there's a little thing that I love from this episode's council scene. I think it's the first time we hear the game uh talk on camera. The game. Game. Um oh yeah, right, because they're they're referenced to Neil Gaiman.
1: Yeah.
2: No, they're 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 definitely not a reference to Neil Gaiman, absolutely not.
0: <laughs> but I love their voice. They're they're like it's like this really nice like it's it's almost corian esque. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but it's like it's very it's it's a syn it's a synthesized voice, but it's very bright and lively, and I like that. It's a yeah. it's a yeah. It's I like the done. choice for it.
2: They did a real good job with that.
0: Yeah, like Iron Friend shape. That's my opinion.
2: Do we have anything else we want to talk about for this one? I don't
1: think so. I think we can. We
2: got poor Lita, but I think I think that that is more reasonable in next for the next episode. That's an ongoing thing. Yeah,
0: no, she she's just having a bad everything. All right. Um, so now we're gonna move on to episode two. Whatever happened to Mister Garibaldi? Written by JMS, directed by Kevin James Dobson. As we open up, it has been nine days since Garibaldi went missing, and Sheridan was presumed killed. All the non-aligned worlds are heading back to their home worlds, and the impending doom is growing. Lanier visits Franklin, telling him that there's a problem with Delenn. Meanwhile... And Zahadoop, Sheridan is... Alive, question mark, exclamation point, question mark. Uh, He's having some dreams of some ghost tentacles holding him up and asking him who he is and what he wants. Um, let me tell you, I wish my dreams were that interesting. Um, <laughs> he wakes up and finds an alien standing over him. The alien tells him there's no way off the planet and to resign himself to his fate. Very comforting. When Sheridan tells him that the job of a prisoner is to escape, the alien offers some double speak. We learn that this alien is named Lorian, and Lorian lectures Sheridan on the power of words and name.
1: Uh, record he- scratch. <laughs> Lorian Lectures someone on the power of names. <laughs> Fuck off, JMS. You rip off shit. Lorian on Zaha Doom is lecturing someone on names. What Are, is a ranger going to show up? Is that what's next? You fucking hack. I'm sorry. Continue.
2: But what about the Eye of Sauron too?
1: Yeah the Eye of Sauron going to distract you? Lorian <laughs> uh, also
0: lectures Sheridan on the importance of who he is. But he also clarifies, Sheridan is dead, or at least most likely is getting to that point. It has been nine days that Sheridan has been on Zahadu. Sheridan could not even feel his own pulse. He doesn't believe this is happening, but Lorian reminds him about the last thing he did, which was jump over a mile-high chasm while two 500-megaton warheads were exploding, which is, uh, no-kill like overkill? Sheridan starts to get aggravated, and he grabs Lorian and asks who he is. Sheridan flashes back to the image of the white maw thing, and Lorian says that he is getting closer to his end. Back on the station, Franklin visits Delenn, who has been meditating. Franklin is there to help Delenn, who has been fasting for over a week. Delenn is punishing herself for losing John and for the Alliance breaking up. She blames her secrecy for John rushing off to Zaha Doom. She thanks Stephen for coming, but says that she will continue her fast until she sees John again, even if it is in the place where no shadows fall. Franklin has been given the task of going through Sheridan's things later on. He found a data crystal with a message for Delenn, who watches it. It's a personal log after Sheridan broke B5 away from Earth. He talks about turning pain into something positive, and that if you're falling off a cliff, you might as well try to fly. He recounts the pain that the Minbari had given him during the war, but now he's in love with the Minbari. Later, the White Star Fleet arrives at Babylon 5, and Delenn addresses the rangers. They are going to make a last strike at Zahadu to show the non-aligned worlds a rallying cry. They will wait seven days, then strike. She quotes John, saying, if they're falling off the cliff, this is their chance to fly. We go back to Zahadoom, where Jot has been moving around in circles in the caves. Lorien tells him the only way to end is to surrender to death. Jon wants to stop the war, and Lorien remarks that he does as well, as the other races are his children. Lorien is not just a first one, he is the first one. Jon realizes that he must know a way off, but he hasn't taken it. Casually, Lorien mentions that Sheridan has a piece of Vorlon in it. John says that its name is Kosh, and Lorien seems to recognize it. Lorien says that a part of Kosh is in him, and they are both clinging to life, but they must surrender to death. Lorien informs him that they must have something more than Sheridan fearing what will happen if he's not there, but instead have something that he is trying to do. He must surrender to the death of flesh, to the death of fear, and let go. Sheridan feels the darkness getting closer. Lorien says that there are many things worth dying for, but Sheridan needs something worth living for. Lorien asks him to fall... And Sheridan asks how he knows that Lorraine will catch him. Lorraine tells him that he cannot create life but only breathe on the remaining embers, and that hope is all John has. Meanwhile, over in the B plot, we start with Jakar. B Be for better. Uh, yeah, uh, we'll, uh, yeah, we'll say that. Uh, we start with Jakar, who is in a CD alien bar with some wicked Halo, like Halo combat evolved guitar riffs in the background here. He has a piece of a star fury, Garibaldi's, and he's investigating the scrapper who found it. When Jakar presses him, he is accosted by some local thugs. The head of the muscle tells Jakar to leave, and who shows to back Jakar up? Marcus. This episode is going great, (laughs) y'all. The thugs hit an alarm, and Jakar and Marcus flee. The leader of the criminals alerts a Centauri soldier to their presence, however. Marcus and Jakar hide out, noting that the search for them is rather too intense. Marcus was worried for Jakar, so he followed Jakar on, ro- on his quest to find Garibaldi. We get a fun moment with the expanding pike, and then a cut back to the bar. Two Centauri soldiers show the bar owner some photos, and he identifies Jakar, who has a very, very big bounty on his head. Marcus visits the contact and engages in some intimidation tactics. He finds out that the location of the Star Fury was given to the scavenger by interplanetary expeditions. They find a name, Montanya, and Jakar insists that Marcus returns to Babylon 5 for its resources. Marcus departs, but in the night, Centauri soldiers come and j- capture Jakar. On Centauri Prime, Londo is st- stirred from his sleep by that old minister fellow. The emperor has summoned him urgently. Cartagia jokes that Londo could be killed for keeping him waiting, but instead he has a gift for Londo. Jakar in shackles. Londo is shocked, but he thanks the emperor. Cartagia asks Jakar if he has anything to say, and Jakar, like a boss, simply asks him if he knows where Garibaldi is. Such a good scene. We then cut to Garibaldi, who is being kept in a metal chamber. A voice over a PA asks what happened after he left Babylon 5. Garibaldi says that he does not know, but the voice insists that he is lying. A montage of questioning leads to Garibaldi snapping, and he is tranquilized via gas. A figure enters the room wearing black, a suit, leather gloves, and a mirrored helmet. God, I wonder who that could be.
2: (laughs) Have we met anyone on this show who wears black leather gloves? Uh, Mm, I think of,
0: like, one fucker who survived this (laughs) entire series. Um, On Centauri Prime, Londo visits Jakar in his cell. Londo scolds Jakar for leaving the Sanctuary of Babylon 5 and remarks that he will not die here, but he will be tortured Made a figure of amusement for the court with his pain. Jakar asks Lando if this would please him, and Lando admits that he never wanted that. Lando tells Jakar about Cartagia's madness, and that he must be removed. He asks for Jakar's help, saying that he cannot prevent Jakar's suffering, but he can save his life. In exchange for his assistance in removing Cartagia. Jakar says that his price is simple, his people. If he is to do this, Narn is to be freed. And Lando agrees. And that is
1: uh, that is whatever happened to Mr. Garibaldi. I want to... Yeah. I mean, we, we obviously have to talk about the most important part of this episode right at the top. I'm sure Justin will agree with me, and that is uh, Marcus and Jakar joking about the extendable pike.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's a fun little scene. It's just like, there's nothing too special about it, but it's just the goofing with each other. And it's so good.
2: Yeah. And the, the implication that Jakar has... Pikle Envy and Jakar just being so offended when like, he has a face like if I offer the cat like a slice of lemon or something. Yeah. It's just like mm.
0: Pikle Envy is the name of my Babylon Five inspired punk band. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I love I love the way that this picks up from their interactions in late delivery from Avalon. Like That established a lot of ground that this is building on of them, like having this, you know, great camaraderie with each other. Uh, I would like to throw out a big content warning here for anybody who might be watching this episode who has not watched it already, which is that there is a very graphic description of vivisection. Yeah. um, When Londo is talking to Jakar in Jakar's cell. So, you. If that's the sort of thing that you're not comfortable with, you might want to just fast forward that section.
1: Yeah. Uh, In general, I would say, look, I don't have to tell you that I love Jakar. And as such, this storyline with Jakar imprisoned uh, by the Centauri is one that I, I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but I mean, it's, Jakar is just such a fucking boss in this storyline. So I I like the storyline. Mm-hmm comma but it's rough like that's
2: real hard to watch the
1: depiction of torture and trauma and abuse is it's pretty graphic and they don't so pull long. many punches uh so in general i think you kind of got to be ready for that where that storyline takes you
2: yeah
0: I gotta say, like, th- like we're gonna get into this in later episodes, but there, um, my my primary thing about this is that this is, and we can go, we're gonna go into this, I think, more in like specific episodes. But the this is the start of an arc that I would describe, and I do not use this adjective lightly. It is biblical, mm-hmm. um, and like that's mm-hmm. very specific. Like this is like the imagery. Of uh, Jakar with like the weird like cross shackle thing. Yeah. Is very passionate of the Christ. Absolutely.
2: And then there's uh next episode with uh, him being flogged as well. Yeah. We'll, 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 yeah. Yeah. Like, we'll get to that.
0: We will like just like, I, I think we'll need to like restate this, but like, for people who are watching this, just a huge content critic for all this. Jakar yeah. is going to have a rough season. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I I just particularly wanted to call out the uh, call out the vivisection <laughs> description because it is really graphic.
1: Yeah, it's 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 pretty rough, especially because it's two characters that you're theoretically very fond of and
2: very invested in. It.
1: Yeah, invested in. So that's it's it's harder in that context.
2: I find season four Londo to be fascinating because like we've spent the last few seasons hating Londo more and more and for extremely legitimate reasons. And then he gets back to Centauri prime and it just like fucks him up, man. It feels to me like throughout season two and three, he was like just fueled by like nostalgia and patriotic fervor Mm -hmm. and now that he's actually back on Centauri Prime and sees what has happened in the wake of like who he's put on the throne and how things are going here, he's just like that's all gone and he's deflated. He's like the the what he, he kind of reverts back to the the washed up old Republican that we see in you know, Born to the Purple, etc. But, you know, at the same time, he's still fucking scheming the whole time. Like, you know, he's, you know, yes, they, for the good of Centauri Prime, they must kill the Emperor, but also, like, also that'll be good for Londo. Yeah. Right? Like, listen, have no illusions there. But it's it's really interesting to see him take a turn and and this conversation where Londo goes into Jakar's cell and is, you know, describing the vivisection and Jakar asks him, like, and is this something that you enjoy? And Londo's like, maybe once upon a time, but no, not anymore.
0: Yeah. No, <laughs> and he quickly corrects himself and he's like, no, no, I would have ne- like, we, we've, like, we were always enemies, but like, I didn't want this to
2: happen. Yeah. And Londo's like, if you, if you wanted to die, I could have taken care of that, like, quickly and with dignity.
0: Yeah. I think that this is like, it, it's an interesting point because, like, there's the culture, like, there's the, Freaking ice bath, Doug. He takes of just like realizing how fucked Sandori Prime is, and he has the two people in his life he could trust the most with him. (laughs) Because so 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 back back in episode one, he uh, the exact line that Lando says when he's asking Veer to come is, "You you are the closest thing I have to a friend. I need a friend, Veer." Wait, I could do this. I could do this, Mister Garibaldi! There we go. You are the closest thing I have to a friend. I need a friend, Veer. There we go. It's been a while since we had a Londo voice. God, I thought that's I'd bring so them good.
2: You do such a but good job. It's
0: bananas how good your Londo is. He's of the two people who he can trust the most in the galaxy right now. Like, Veer is his closest friend, and Jakar...
2: is his closest enemy.
0: Yeah, and like he knows that like because of their extreme circumstance... He can trust Jakar so long as he gives Jakar sufficient motivation, and that Jakar will not double cross him. Like that's Jakar is not a backstabber. He is like he is not some. It's not the primary way he operates. Have we ever really seen him do anything like dis, like openly deceitful, like on a level of like playing the political game? Because he's
2: not since season one, at least. Yeah,
0: because he's very much. He's much more a like, especially when he's representing the Narn as a people.
2: Yeah, uh, not since like the stuff with Ragesh three.
0: Yeah, um, and I think that's like maybe the character wasn't defined as clearly back then. Yeah, but it's like Jakar, when he is repre- like he'll he'll occasionally do stuff with like that's a little underhanded, like when he's dealing with personal things, like the assassin in Parliament of Dreams. Yeah, <laughs> but like whenever he's re- whenever he is representing this the Narn people. He is very forthright. And and Londo knows that and he can he can count on that. And I think that's very I think it's important for Londo is like to realize he's in that situation. And I think it's like these are the two people that Londo can trust most in the world. And that's you made really a joke yep. about like about shipping here. And it's just like I think that there is I think it's something that like that Londo and Jakar sort of I don't want to say deserve each other, but they're basically like they are so intertwined that there was no that like the second the second Jakar left Babylon Five he was going to find Lando. Well, yeah.
2: What was it that what was how was it that Kat described it? Um, I think she said something along the lines of like, you know, if if there hadn't been you know this giant rift between their two species, they would be best friends, but instead they're best enemies. Yeah, yeah. It's
0: pretty I accurate. Mean, I, I've made like I I we have somewhere in the archived vault the the mirror mirror the dark mirror universe Babylon Five pick <laughs> that I made while high. Um, oh, that'd be fun. <laughs> you, you can go listen to it. It's back in like April or something. I posted on the server, but like, in my thing is like, no, it, it's like in like that one is like I've like. Jakar and Lando are part of a Narns and alliance, and they are just, they they are the two, they're, like, they're hand-in-hand hand there, and they're, like, bitter, bitter frenemies.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm looking forward to, you know, we're, we'll, you know, I've watched through episode 12 at this point, so I'm looking forward to, like, talking about, like, where this is going, but, and getting to the big
1: ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Yep. Yeah, this is a funny episode. Like a lot happens, but it's it's a fast one too. Like it's a lot mm-hmm. of setup. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm looking looking over the summary, and it moves the plot forward at a pretty co- good clip. And there's some good moments, but there's actually like not a lot to to talk about
2: in a weird way. Yeah, so so Justin, you missed something in the summary um, with describing where Lorien can only breathe on the rem- remaining embers, et cetera.
0: All
2: right. As Sheridan is, you know, as the darkness is coming for him, Lorien says that he has to Sheridan has to trust him to catch him, and Sheridan then flashes back to the last person who said, you know, if you fall, I'll catch you, which was delay. Which, and, and then, you know, with the, you, know, you have you have many things worth dying for. Is there anything worth living for? And it's, Dylan. Oh. Yes.
1: Uh, I have a point about Lorien that I would like to raise. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't remember, one of you made a note in the summary in our notes about uh, the fact that, like, the galaxy is full of humanoid aliens. Yes, that,
2: that would be me. Lorien
1: is a humanoid. Do you remember? And he
2: refers to the others as their as his children. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Do you remember that episode of Star Trek? Thank you for that. Yes. Motion, Justin. Yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. Where it turns out that some weird race basically spooged all over the galaxy. <laughs> yes. And yes, I remember that episode of Star Trek. <laughs> so glad and right. then like left a memo. In their in their in their,
2: in their DNA, find all of the They have to find all, of the, yeah. to find all of the pieces of DNA and put them together, and it's one of the Picard like archaeological episodes. It's the worst. Yes, I remember that. It's a
1: it's a bad episode.
2: It's a bad two parter. Yeah, what it is. And so it's
1: it's a rough one, but it's the exact it's the exact same vibe I got off of Lorian, where I could just <laughs> imagine him in his youth just being like. This looks like a good planet. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, we've got the Centauri a few, a few millennia later.
0: <laughs> so I do want to say for this episode, Franklin is
1: good at this episode. Nah, I,
0: was yeah. like, I, need to, I need to acknowledge it because I'm this is like...
1: Around. I'm not going to pay attention to this.
0: Okay, I'm halfway through season four, and like this is a good Franklin season. Like, I think like, I'm, yeah.
2: they've, they've kept him like just being professional.
0: Yeah. He's professional. He respects a patient's brownies when he's like, when she's, when Dylan is like, no, nah, I'm going to keep doing the fast. And he's like, okay. Um, and then he's like, he is given a task of like, Hey, go through Sheridan's things because you're the doctor and you're, this is confidentiality. <laughs> and like, he's like, Hey, I'm going to do something nice for Dylan to see, to try and give her hope. And like, We've got a have this journal entry of John's and she can read it. And like I feel like overall, he doesn't get a lot to do in this episode, but like he does the opening narration. And like, there's definitely a malaise there, and he's like, he definitely feels a lot more uh, stable.
2: Yeah,
1: like yeah, <laughs> I'm going to propose like- something. I put my head. I took my headphones off earlier because I couldn't listen to this, but uh, <laughs> I put them back on, and uh, I'm going to propose something wild here. Have you ever known someone who got into a relationship with someone who was toxic, and it made them pretty toxic for a while? And then when that person was out of their life for a little while, they started acting a little more normal? Is that you and and Franklin?
2: No. (laughs) Is that Garibaldi and Franklin? No.
1: (laughs) Franklin and Garibaldi. Garibaldi conveniently is suddenly off the station, and look who's acting like uh, a mature adult. Yeah, Just just throwing it out there. And we know it won't last. Garibaldi will be back because his contract lasts, you know, five seasons. Maybe. I don't know. I don't actually remember how many. I I truthfully don't remember when he stops, if he stops showing up. I really don't. Um, But I'm sure that Franklin will go back to being an amoral black hole. At some point in the near future. Excuse you,
0: he is a he is involved in the best subplot of this season.
1: Oh, that's right. Okay, he. But and where, where's where's Garibaldi when he's when he's when he in that best subplot? Not on screen. Nowhere <laughs> nearby. He's not even in the same part of the solar system. This theory, this theory holds water. This theory holds water like a goddamn aquifer.
2: We'll have to we'll have to track this. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So yeah, um, listeners. When we get to the Mars duo du- du episode, we're going to have to like isolate that and quarantine it. Because let me tell you, I'm going to beat him on bullshit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Those episodes are terrific. Yeah. Oh, man. I can't wait. Let me just tell you, listeners. Uh, I was watching, Justin and I watched those episodes together. And Justin's reaction to the end of the first of those two episodes was one of the best mom- one of my best memories of Babylon five I've I've got. <laughs> was the most beautiful one of the most pure purely joyful reactions I've ever seen. It was it was tremendous. I can't wait to talk about it on the episode. Oh uh, it's gonna be so good.
2: I've I've got some other stuff that oh, I yeah. liked from this episode. Mm-hmm. So DeleN has an absolutely killer line which is the when she's talking to Franklin, she says that um I should have loved him less and trusted him more, which is a hell of a line. Mm -hmm. And she delivers it very well. And I really like, we've got mirrored framing, both kind of emotionally and cinematography wise, between the scene in season two, episode two, where John is viewing his wife's video letter to his sister, and kind of saying goodbye via that. And Delenn viewing this log of john's Uh, it's a nice kind of cinematic callback and they they set up those shots very closely mirrored
1: yeah i noticed that too on the watch through and i really like it
2: it's it's a good detail that like i think most people watching along who aren't critically watching aren't going to be like oh they set up the framing of that to match exactly but it's like it's the sort of thing that like pings somewhere deep in your brain that like you've seen yeah. this before and it's familiar.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's one step up from like – it's not obvious, but I also think you don't have to be like us to notice it. I think mm-hmm. if you watch the season more than once, you'd pick up on it. Because they yeah. they make a they really line those shots up, and I think she even kind of like has the same sort of gesture towards the screen. Yeah, they
2: they both they both touch the screen, and that's like the, part, with the same hand and everything. Yeah, that's
1: the part that really triggered it for me. That like got the recognition going, um, and I think it's a nice moment, and it really like locks in that memory the 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 linkage there that like they got that thing going on, and they both of them have now lost someone to this planet.
2: I also love when. Cartagia has, you know, has Jakar as a gift and pulls Londo in for, you know, to present the gift in the middle of the night when Londo's in his fucking pajamas. Yeah. And Londo... The little bell. The little bell. Yes, the little bell. And Londo, you know, had the had the temerity to get dressed before coming before the Emperor. And is like, you know... You were late. This is rude, and I could have you killed for this. And Londo just gives this stream of absolute, like, stone faced bullshit. It's so good. <laughs> and Kartage just eats it up. It's fantastic. Yeah. The way that Londo, like, it highlights how good Lando is at the political game that he's, like, he's able to m- manipulate Kartage, who is, like, insane.
1: Yeah. I think the last bit is we have a JMS Speaks on this one that you find JMS not annoying.
2: Well, sort of. So <laughs> yes and no. Uh, yeah, I like the JMS Speaks on this one. So this is one of the JMS Speaks where he actually directly addresses the whole Tolkien thing. Mm-hmm. Where he's like slightly more nuanced than some other times that he's spoken on that. Um, in that he's like not denying similarities, but he talks about like drawing inspiration from similar mythology to what Tolkien may have been inspired by. I
1: appreciate that this is a podcast, so you guys can't see the side eye I'm throwing JMS
2: through <laughs>
1: my webcam here.
2: Like, I I absolutely don't buy this at least completely. Um, like, especially with the names, but and also I would like to point out that this is completely reversed in, like, the next JMS Speaks for the same episode where he just completely flies off the handle when people say that, like, he made a Zork reference or something like that. He's just like, for the love of God, I didn't make a fucking Zork reference. Like, get a life, nerds. You know, not everything is a reference to something else.
1: Yeah. Not Chill. even when I name something, uh Kaza- I mean, Zaha Doom. <laughs> Lots of things have Rangers and Eyes and uh, Ancient Evil and Zaha Doom. I mean, Kaza Doom. I mean, which one is it? I fucking forget. <laughs> fucking Jesus. God, I. This is one of those things that's like, just say it. Just say it. It's fine. You and literally everybody is influenced by Tolkien. Yes, your references are a little more shameless than most. Considering it's a sci-fi show in space. Like, you just lifted some names. It's not as though you put the whole plot of Lord of the Rings in your fucking show. It's like you just named the Rangers the Rangers and Kazadum and Zahadum. That's like it, it, they don't even map. They, you just use the names and, like, some vague concepts. But you can't pretend it's not there, you goddamn gibbon. <laughs> yeah. Fucking shit weasel. Jesus.
2: <laughs> oh god.
1: On that note, now that we've called him a shit weasel, I think that's I'm not I don't know how to move on from that for this episode. Um so
0: I do want to point out that there are like no guest stars that we could point out for like who have done anything others like for the both the minister who has appeared in both our Centauri episodes and the Emperor's actor this is basically the last thing they do on screen.
2: Oh God! Really?
1: Like Cartasia
0: That's all he did. Uh, he goes on to do soaps. Oh, like no, I think okay. he does younger. Oh, Restless I can, see, I can see him being good in soaps. Yeah, like like give him some good hair and yeah. But like, he
2: honestly, he does a really good job with Cartagia. Yeah, it's like, a
0: fantastic job.
2: Props to him on that, and like he should have gotten you know more recognition than he got for that part because he he plays the like insane fop so well.
1: And he looks good in the NASCOT. Yeah, yeah, which is not
2: and, and in those like those boots. Like those are those are those are some good boots, man. Yeah. Alright. We good with these? I think so. I don't have All any right. other
1: reasons to call JMS a shit weasel tonight. So
0: yeah. Alright. So next time we are going to be covering episodes three and four, the summoning and falling towards apotheosis. Until next time, be India. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.